Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Rexdale Alliance. Good to be with you today. For those joining us online, a special welcome to you as well from wherever you happen to be joining us from. This morning, uh, I'm bringing you my last message on the After God's Own Heart series. And as we've been learning about David, I'm not sure that any human being has ever existed through higher highs and lower lows than David did. We've watched together as Samuel came to Jesse's home, to Jesse's family, and bypassed the more obvious sons to choose the runt of the litter, David. Because God said, everyone else is looking at outward appearances, but God says, I always look at the heart. And God loved David's heart of wild abandon and deep reflection and stubborn love. We talked about that. We watched as David had this incredible faith in God when he was still just a boy that he single-handedly took on Goliath, this giant in the valley. And we learned how true courage is cultivated in our hearts through all the unseen moments of faith. We learned together about spiritual friendship between David and Jonathan, maybe the greatest friendship ever recorded in all of literature, as Jonathan loved David more than he loved himself. And then we stood beside David in the cave of Agilim, in that place where God seemed absent. Remember life in the cave? We talked about that. It's that place of confusion and disappointment. And we learned that God sometimes does his absolute best work in caves. And it's never the time for a shortcut when God's doing a work in the dark places. And we loved David for his compassion on this forgotten, disabled outcast named Mephibosheth, whose name has been the nightmare of English-speaking preachers for generations but is this amazing example of what it means to be invited to a table of mercy. Do you remember the table of mercy that we came to? David led an amazing life when you think about it. Last weekend, as David talked about Psalm 139, this ever-present God that is with us that David was reflecting on. What an incredible life from shepherd boy to king, from fugitive to conqueror. He was abandoned, but new friendship like few human beings ever have. He was this tender worshiper, and he had a fierce warrior. He was a warrior poet. He was deeply flawed in so many ways, and yet was known, and still today known, as a man after God's own heart. You know, I really don't know of any human beings that has, that has had a higher high or lower lows than David. And I think that's why wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done, we all have something to learn from David. Because no matter what we go through, when we read the scriptures, it seems like David's been there. No matter what happens to me, no matter what experiences I'm going through, in some way, David has been there. And this weekend, as we near the end of this series, my hope is that you will just keep continuing to come back to David's story again and again in your own devotional lives. Keep reading his story. Dive into the Psalms that he wrote. Let them guide you as you pray. Let them become kind of a spiritual friend to you. I hope that David through the scriptures and by the anointing of God's spirit, that David becomes like a spiritual companion with you along your journey of following Jesus. And for my last message about David, I just want to look with you at something that happened to David's name in the New Testament. Because there's a really significant connection between King David and Jesus, God in the flesh, the one we worship. You may remember, we talk about this at Christmas time usually in Luke chapter 2, when it says that Joseph came to Bethlehem, the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now the New Testament, in fact, opens with these words. In Matthew 1, it says that this is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And the last words of Jesus ever recorded in Scripture, the last chapter of Revelation say, 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am. You know, how does he introduce himself? I am the root and the offspring or the son of David. Revelation 22, 16. Here's a question I have for you this morning. Why is Jesus called the son of David? I mean, it's a distinction when you think about it. That's not given to anybody else in the Old Testament. Jesus is never addressed by the title of son of Moses or son of Elijah or son of Isaiah. You ever notice that? But over and over and over again, Jesus is called son of David. So the question is, why? Why is that? Do you think it's because of David's faultless moral track record that Jesus so badly wants to be associated with David? Does I need to take on that title? I don't think so. In fact, there are Old Testament characters, Joseph for one, whose life was far purer than David's. See, I don't think it was about David's giftedness or about his courage or about his character. I think this title, Son of David, actually stresses two aspects of Jesus' identity and mission. And what I want to do for us this morning is just speak about those two aspects around the title of Son of David that is pointed out in Jesus' life and ministry and then talk about those implications for you and you and me, because there are implications this morning. But it's this profound, profoundly meaningful name, the Son of David. You know, the first reason Jesus is called the Son of David, I think, is that it was a title of hope. It was maybe the supreme title of hope for an Israelite. You see, David's reign in Israel was forever remembered, not simply as a good era of leadership, but as the golden age of Israel. Think about this for a minute. Well, the first king, Saul, it's clear from the scriptures that although he had a good start as king, he quite quickly rebelled against God and weakened the country against their enemies. And then David became king after Saul, and he unified the country, and he brought freedom from their enemies, and he led them to this kind of unprecedented prosperity and devotion to God. They had never, as a people, been in that kind of situation before. I mean, as, they, as the people of Israel could trace back their history, they look back to Moses and their captivity in Egypt. They've always been this kind of nomadic people. And even as they come into the land under Joshua, there's all this conquest that has to happen. There's this settling that happens, or kind of always at war. And they'd never been in the kind of situation before where they could settle and be at peace, where they could look around at God's gift to them and realize and embrace the fact that they had truly become a nation under God. That's what David did. Under his leadership, God's blessing was upon that people in a way that they had never experienced before. And then David's son, he, Solomon reigned. And most of Solomon's reign was really just the overflow of a gift flowing out of David's accomplishments. And it wasn't long before Solomon started to do things that led the nation away from God as well. And then after Solomon... Israel was divided into two kingdoms. A civil war broke out. Israel was in the south, Judah in the north, two separate kings, a divided community. And then after that came centuries of exile and oppression by one foreign power after another. And that led right up to Jesus' day. There was only one brief moment that the people of Israel could look back on when the whole country was free, when everyone was united, they were devoted, they were at peace, and it was under King David. And so that vision of a community, of a people at peace with God and one another became a title associated with David. And see, by the first century, 
By the time Jesus came to earth, the glory of Israel was almost forgotten. It's like the glory of Israel under David was like this distant memory. And for way longer than anybody could remember, the people of Israel had just kind of been pawns. Pawns to the Babylonians. Pawns of the Assyrians. Pawns of the Romans. Nothing, nothing was as the way it was supposed to be. And the hope of Israel was this, that someday, all these ancient prophecies would speak about it, that someday things were going to take a turn for the better. Someday we're going to have a leader. We're going to have a king like David again, the root of Jesse coming out of that family line. We are going to have a son of David. We're going to have a Messiah, a savior. And that word Messiah simply means anointed or chosen. And Christ, Christos, means anointed one. And the people thought when the son of David comes, when the anointed one comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going to set everything right. And then Jesus did come. It was so fascinating. Despite all the prophecies, all the longing, all the, all the sense of that someday someone will come to deliver us. Jesus comes and many people don't recognize him. Because he didn't exactly look or act like they thought a true son of David ought to. Ah, but some people did recognize him. Some people saw Jesus for who he was. Like, there's never been a man like this. And it's this very touching thing in the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. If you were to go through, particularly in the book of Matthew, and look at how the title, Son of David, is used... Do you know, how, you know how it's usually used? You know, Jesus never refers to himself, other than Revelation, as son of David. Most often, it's used as a cry of help for those who would otherwise be hopeless. It's people calling him son of David out of a place of desperation. If you were to read through time and time again, son of David, son of David comes from the heart cry of someone who is broken and out of hope completely. And they look at Jesus and there's something about him that what comes out of them, out of their history, out of their story, out of the echoing of years of oppression comes the son of David. I see you for who you are. You're our hope. I mean, in Matthew 9, it says, as Jesus went from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us. Who? Son of David. In Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman, I mean, she's not even an Israelite, from that vicinity, came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And then one of the great stories in the New Testament, I think I might steal this one to do for this summer, the story of blind Bartimaeus, an encounter with Jesus. You know, when he, that is Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, He began to shout. He's sitting by the road. He's blind. And he begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, like, stop it. Quiet down. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It's a great story when Bartimaeus cries out for mercy. It goes on to say that many rebuked Bartimaeus and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more. And Jesus stopped and, and called him. And so they, these bystanders, they called the blind man. They said, cheer up, get on your feet. The son of David, Jesus is calling you. And you just see these bystanders saying to him, first of all, like the whole crowd is like, be quiet. He doesn't want anything to do with you. And then Jesus says, bring him to me. And all of a sudden the bystanders are oh, like, oh, cheer up. Bartimaeus, go see him. See, we've been here the whole time just trying to get you to him. Of course Jesus wants to see you. 
Because Jesus, the son of David, just loves it when people cry out to him and ask him for help. Because he's never too busy. He's never preoccupied. He loves it. He loves to give hope. There's this poignant moment in this time with Bartimaeus and Jesus where blind Bartimaeus is standing in front of Jesus, the son of David, and Jesus looks at this man and asks one of the most profound questions in all of Scripture. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Now the crowd around is looking at a blind man. They're going, ah, does he know that maybe the sight thing? But Jesus stands looking at this man and wants to hear the request of his heart. Bartimaeus simply answers, I want to see. Lord, I want to see. And Jesus restores his sight. So I have a question for you this morning, friends, here in this room and joining us online. Allow me to repeat to you the question that Jesus gave to Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, asks, what do you want Jesus to do for you today? If you could ask Jesus, the hope bringer, for anything like Bartimaeus did, what would make you want to shout out to get Jesus' attention for him to answer your cry? What makes you want to cry out to him? Or maybe it's a healing. Maybe there's a physical reality in your life that you want to be delivered from. Or maybe it's a healing of the heart. Emotionally, spiritually, you are sickened these days by all sorts of things. Maybe for yourself or maybe for a friend. I don't know, maybe the cry of your heart would be something like a cry for peace because you're just tormented these days by fear or concern. Maybe it's a relationship issue. There's something going on in your home and it feels like your whole life is ripping apart and falling apart around you. And if you had the moment and Jesus was standing in front of you and he was to ask you, what is it that you want me to do for you? What would you say? Would you go to that deepest need? Or would we kind of you know, filter off some... Some of the stuff we usually pray about that we never really get to the real prayer of the heart. But if, because he is, if Jesus was here, he was looking at you, and you saw in him this eternal hope bringer who could do anything, what would you ask him to do for you? I'm going to ask us to pause right here in the middle of this message. And I want to lead you in prayer. Would you pray with me? Bow our heads together. Instead of just doing this at the end, when we usually reflect, I think right now is the time to ask Jesus for the things that are on our hearts. And so I want you to imagine with me that you're standing before Jesus. And by the way, if in your imagination he, his arms are crossed and he's looking angry, that's not Jesus. Discard that image. Now Jesus stands before you with gentleness, kindness, and love. He loves you so much he'd give his life for you, and he did. And he's asking you, what is it that you want me to do for you? Just in your heart, pray that prayer. Make that request. Jesus, son of David, and give your request. Why don't you do that right now? Jesus, I believe you're here to meet powerfully with us today. And I, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with every prayer that's been prayed of the heart, that Jesus, you have heard. Jesus, 
Lord, mercy, son of David, have mercy on us, your people. Bring us into alignment with the very things of your heart today. For every prayer, for freedom, for peace, for joy, for healing, for all of it, Jesus, would you be pouring out your mercy upon us today? And we know the truth. that It's never you that holds back on us. It's us. We put up obstacles and resistance against you, and so we, we bring those down in Jesus' name. And for the prayer of every heart that's been prayed today, would you know the mercy of Christ today? Would you see in the eyes of Jesus your hope bringer, the one who is here to set you free? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Very important facet of this title, Son of David, is that title of hope. And every time you hear that now, Jesus Christ, Son of David, you remember the hope that he brings. But then there's a second nuance to this title, Son of David. We're going to look at Matthew 1 because the fact that Jesus is called the Son of David also emphasizes something really important about the kind of kingdom that Jesus would be initiating. And the title talks, first of all, the title talks about hope. But Son of David is also a title of openness. Now, Matthew 1, 1 to 16, if you're open to the New Testament, right at the beginning, there's a genealogy. It's a series of essentially who begat who, who gave birth to whom. And it doesn't seem like a really gripping way to start a book. I mean, usually we're taught if you're writing, there's kind of got to be a hook. There's got to be something that pulls you in and gets you interested. Matthew wasn't interested in that at all. He starts with a list of names. Have you ever spent any time with someone whose family is obsessed with their genealogy and they just want to talk about it all the time? It can get a little tedious, right? But to the Jewish people, to Israelites, this was the most exciting stuff. I mean, they loved genealogical tables and they were used to establish their identity as the people of God because that was such an important theme. But there's a few things we need to know about these genealogies. These genealogical tables were mostly written for heroes and would only contain Israelites. And their their purpose, partly, was to establish purity of the bloodline. In fact, in ancient times, to be a priest, a Levite, a priest had to show an unbroken pedigree all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother. Pure Israelite blood all the way back to Aaron. And if there was any foreign blood mixed in, that would disqualify that person from serving as a priest in God's temple. Now, another thing about these genealogies is that they typically only mention men because women had no legal rights. It just would not have been considered relevant. We need to know who the men are. And then thirdly, they would contain, genealogies would contain respectable or heroic people. A genealogy containing scandalous or shady characters, pretty much unheard of. Now consider this, the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And I just want to point out a few of the names here. First of all, look at verse 3. It says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother, was a woman, was Tamar. Let me tell you a little bit about Tamar, if you don't remember her story. It's found in Genesis 38, if you want to look it up later. And you can read it sometime. First of all, she's a woman, of course. so She doesn't belong in this table usually. Secondly, she was not Jewish. She was considered Aramean. She was an outsider of foreign blood. And thirdly, not only that, she has a really scandalous story. Just to summarize it really briefly, she was widowed. lost her husband to death. And so she disguised herself as a prostitute, seduced and slept with her father-in-law, Judah, so that she could bear children and not be shamed. Scandalous story. And here she is, 
mentioned right in the genealogy of Jesus. Look at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, is another woman, not a man. You might remember her from the story of Jericho. She was not Jewish. She was a Canaanite, an outsider. And if you remember her story, you'll remember she didn't disguise herself as a prostitute. She was a prostitute. That was her business. But she helped the spies from Israel. They came in, and so she was saved. And she gets mentioned in Jesus' story. And in verse 5, we read on that Boaz, father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, third woman in this genealogy that doesn't belong there. And Ruth was also not Jewish. She was a member of the Moabites, the pagan enemies of Israel. And she lived with the Israelites because of her mother-in-law, but she ends up in Jesus' story. And in verse 6, And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Here's a fourth woman who doesn't belong there. Remember her? She's named Bathsheba. Now she committed adultery with David. And it takes... And it talks about Uriah, who was known as Uriah the Hittite. In other words, he was a foreigner. So almost certainly Bathsheba was too. She's not an Israelite. Or else if she was, she'd married a foreigner, which was completely frowned upon. This is the genealogy of Jesus, God in the flesh, son of David. And here are four characters out of that list. Not men, but women. Not Jews, but Gentiles, considered unclean would disqualify any priest, and all but one of them involve a story of pretty scandalous sin. Now, any devout Jew would be shocked and scandalized just by the first few words in Matthew's story. And so what in the world are they doing here? I'll tell you what I think they're doing. I think Matthew is tipping his hand right at the start of his book, of his account of Jesus. This is one of the most beautiful parts of Scripture, I think. He's saying that Jesus Christ, the Son of David... Yes, he has this royal lineage. Yes, he comes from this royal line. We can show it. But this Jesus is going to do everything different. This Jesus, although like David in bringing about that hope, is initiating a kingdom like nobody's ever seen. Because this Jesus, this King Jesus, is taking on himself the, re- the representation and the salvation of the whole fallen human race. The story of Jesus will not just be a good news story for a few religious superstars or one ethnic group. Jesus is the kingdom of God come to earth. And this genealogy, while showing that Jesus, humanly, was from this royal line like David, it's showing us that their kingdoms would be almost nothing alike in every other way. You see, the kingdom that Jesus is announcing is so, many, is so different in so many ways from David's. You see, David sought to establish a kingdom. He sought to establish peace through war and conquest and the killing of enemies. Jesus comes and he establishes a kingdom in which love is the ruling ethic, whether for friends or enemies. And we find that while David's kingdom was about being, about just the people of Israel, about just establishing that people, Jesus comes and he starts throwing open the doors of a new kingdom. Wide open to Gentiles and Jews, women and men, the broken, the marginalized, and even enemies. That the kingdom is open to the likes of you and me in Jesus Christ. That Jesus himself is going to take on himself the guilt of prostitutes and pagans and adulterers and sinners like David and like me and like you. And throw open wide the doors of the kingdom to anyone who will follow this Jesus, son of David. Jesus comes along and says... No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, 
You don't actually have to be part of some particular ethnic group. You don't actually have to be part of some religious group or following in any way. All you have to do is follow me. And Jesus says, you can be part of my story. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, you right here, right now, in your seat, sitting here, those joining us online, you who think that Jesus would be shocked and scandalized by your story, he's coming to you today and saying, I want you part of my story, Jesus says. He's saying, I would choose you. I would choose you to be part of my kingdom because that's what kind of kingdom I'm establishing. There's these two titles, these two aspects of one title. We have this idea of this title of hope, that Jesus is our true hope bringer. And then we look at this title, Son of David, and we're reminded that in Jesus there's a kingdom of openness. It's a title that says what David couldn't do in reconciling the whole world to God, that's what Jesus has come to do. And what David could kind of only get done on a small scale with one little nation for a short time, Jesus is doing for the whole world for all time in bringing peace and goodness and love to anyone who will follow him. Two aspects of one title, hope and openness. And I was just thinking about it this week. I just want to end probably with one of my most favorite verses about David, and it too is in the New Testament, in Acts 13, verse 36. It says, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. It's just a way of saying he was actually really, really dead. Right? It had to give details there. David served God's purpose in his generation. That's what we see from his story. David had his day. He was born and he had gifts. He had some talents. He got some stuff right. Got a lot of stuff wrong. But David himself, for all of his sin and brokenness, served God in his generation. And then his time passed. That's why we read it as history today. But friends, as we come to the end of this series, do you know this, this is now our day? This isn't David's day anymore. This is your day. This is your generation. This is my generation. And like him, we only have a brief time. But this is our moment. Right here, right now. And Jesus, the son of David, is saying to us, you, right there, you be part of my story. You, right where you are, you can serve the purposes of God in your time and you've been, that you've been given. This is about joining God in his purpose to show people everywhere that life in the kingdom is open to all and there is a hope that goes beyond the grave that you can press into and be set free forever. And so the second and last question I'd like to ask of you today is this. We've already asked God, what we, we've already asked God, this is what I want you to do for me. Now I'd like to ask you, how do you want to serve God's purpose right now in your generation? What would that look like for you? How will you be responsive to God in pointing people to this Jesus that is the true hope bringer? This Jesus who has this message of openness to all who will believe and follow. How do you want to serve God's purpose right now in your generation? It's a pretty good epitaph for a life well lived. That no matter what's gone on, that it could be said of you, that it could be said of me, that it could be said of this church, that in the time those people were given, they served God's purpose in their generation, thanks be to God, for his amazing gifts to us. So I ask you, is there something on your heart that God's been stirring in these days? A way to serve, a way to give, a way to reconcile with somebody, something going on that fits right into that space of serving God's purpose in your generation. 
Is it about sharing your faith boldly with someone who's outside the family of God? Is it about giving sacrificially towards something you really believe in? Is it about extending yourself and giving time to people who you otherwise wouldn't give time to, but you know it's about God's purposes being served in your generation? I would say whatever it is, you step in fearlessly. Serve God fully in the generation in which you live, that it could be said of us that we have served God's purpose in our generation for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? We do each weekend. Just want to give us a. We've already done this once in the message. Let's give a little bit of time here to reflect and simply ask the Holy Spirit what it is that He wants to put on our hearts. So I invite you to be at peace, to rest now, to breathe. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to simply continue the work that began even before you woke up this morning, before you even came, of drawing you closer to Jesus. Jesus, we've already brought our requests before you. Uh, The things that we need from you, things we're wanting from you. But now we're turning it and saying, Jesus, this isn't just what we want you to do for us. God, here's what we want to do for your glory. There's ways that you want us to serve your purpose in our generation. Now, there may be some of us that have no idea what that is right now. And some of us might have a really clear idea. But I'm going to ask us this morning to do kind of a bold and courageous thing. That if you're sensing in your heart, even as we've come through the story of David, I think what we see in the story of David is this responsiveness to God that when God says, David, this, he responds and says, yes. He's in this posture of yes towards God constantly. And so even if you don't know right now what serving God's purpose in your generation looks like, I'm going to ask us for everyone who in this moment is willing to say, God, I want to. My desire is to serve you in this generation for your glory. I'm just going to ask you to stand and I want to pray over you. If that's your heart's cry, God, I want to serve your purposes in my generation. I don't want to be held back with fear. I don't want to be held back by the thoughts and opinions of others. That if it's a call to ministry, if it's a call to go overseas, if it's a call to be engaged in my workplace or in my school, if it's a call to to testify to your goodness, if it's a call to sacrificial giving, God, whatever it is, I want to serve your purpose in my generation. And by standing, really what we're saying is, God, we're repenting of serving our own purposes in our generation. We're repenting of this pursuit of us getting our way, of a life that only serves me. And instead we're saying, God, it's your purpose that matters. We want to give ourselves wholeheartedly with full abandon, fearlessly to the purposes for which you've given us this time in this space on earth to bring glory to you. So for each one standing, I bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that God would be speaking so clearly to you in these days about what it means to serve his purpose in your generation, to know what it is to be someone so led and loved by Jesus that your very life becomes a ministry of the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. I bless you with the power of God. Would you have the anointing of God's Spirit upon you to know what it is to walk in the power of the Spirit,
to be responsive to the invitations of God's Spirit relationally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, whatever else it is, and that it would be said of those here in this space and those joining us online that are committing their hearts to do so, that we will let nothing, nothing keep us from serving God's purpose in our generation. And so we renounce fear. We renounce greed. We renounce anything, Jesus, that stands in the way from us fully following you into your purposes. We renounce pride. We renounce control. In Jesus' name, we, we renounce anything. Selfishness, gossip, slander. We renounce all of it in Jesus' name that we would be set free to be your people serving you, our God, in this generation for your glory, not ours. And God, I pray that what you're stirring in your, in your congregation today would lead to lives being transformed forever, your goodness, your hope, your love being manifest in our homes, in our communities, in this city, in this nation, all around the world. We do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite everybody to stand now. I just want to send you with the benediction. I want to send you with this blessing. Before I do, every weekend there's the opportunity to be prayed for. And I think some of, yeah, I think some of you this morning, um, God's put on your heart one of the ways that you can serve God begins by you receiving prayer for something, being anointed with oil, a prayer for healing, a prayer for provision, whatever else it is. There'll be people here to minister to you. We'll be glad to do that. But go now in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, fearlessly following him, serving God and his purpose in this generation. It's worth it. It's worth it all. David would testify to us today. It's worth it to give your all for what you believe in the most, for the glory of God. Would we do the same in Jesus' name? Go in peace. Have a great week.